Well, good morning. Every time we gather as a church, if you were paying attention last week, <laughs> we need to be thinking about, Lord, you are filling us with your spirit. We are worshiping King Jesus, the risen King. We are gathering to see the spirit poured out. We are gonna be filled so that the fruit of the spirit flows from the life that we live. Amen, church. I want us to have that active posture when we gather. We're not here just to you know, receive, right? We're here to be a part of a, of a living body, right? Here's what it says in the book of 1 Peter. It says, built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I want us to have a mindset that says, hey, we are gathering. And guys, not only are we gathering together here on earth, but, but friends, think about this. We are joining myriads of angels worshiping Jesus in praise. And just if we could just have that spiritual mindset that our praises are joining heaven's praises, I just think we'd sing a little louder, be a little more passionate, be maybe a little less reserved. Come on, somebody. Like, let's go. David danced before the Lord. Raise your hand if you've seen uh, Chris's David dancing video. The, the new edition of the Penguins came out recently. No, no one's seen it. A few of you have? Okay, yeah, it's not viral yet. We need to get You guys got to see David dancing, the, the new version, uh, you know, Chris as David dancing before the Lord. It's awesome. Anyway, it'll give you a laugh. It's, you know, somewhere on Instagram or whatever. Anyway, today we are uh, continuing our series on Make Every Effort. And really, I hope that this has been an encouraging series for you. In that first week, we talked about the fact that you know, we might look at a series on effort and think, Brad, I don't have much effort. Like I have no energy. Like I am so carried down by life right now. I am pushed in multiple directions. And guys, the first thing we learned was, guys, just give God whatever effort you have and he will supply the energy. This is a walk of faith. This is not a white knuckle, teeth gritting. I got to figure out how to do this. This is you just saying, God, I'm giving you myself. I'm going to give that effort and you are going to supply the energy. Then we talked about how we need to have strategic effort. Where is God already working in your life? Where is God already on the move? Don't try to go on your own. This is a partnership where you are surrendering to the spirit and you're watching where the spirit's at work and you're listening to the promptings of the spirit. Maybe in your life, in your work, in your family, when those openings open up for a conversation that talks about Jesus, just Go through that. Like, let the spirit lead you in that. Then last week, as I said, we talked about paying attention to what's filling us because whatever fills us, forms us. And if we're letting anger and lust and greed and all those other things just kind of have easy access into our hearts and minds, friends, we will be formed that way. The greatest lie of the enemy is it doesn't affect me. It always affects you. Now, it might not affect you exactly how it affects somebody else, but whatever is filling you, Come on, guys, is forming you. Can I get an amen to that, right? So I want the spirit to fill me so that he will form me in the image of Jesus. So today we are, we're gonna talk about one other um, aspect of where we're called to put effort. And this is, uh, again, we pulled this phrase, make every effort from places in the New Testament. And there are two places where we see this today that is on a topic that I think is really critical for all of us today. And that's, look at this in Ephesians chapter four, it says, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. 
In Romans 14, it's a slightly different, but a similar uh, subject. Therefore, uh, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Now, we don't really use the word edification a whole lot, but that just means to build others up. So both of these verses are about the effort we are supposed to put into the people around us, into the relationships around us, into the effort into being united, the effort into working towards peace, being the kind of person that builds others up in our relationship. So I was thinking about this, this phrase and this topic of unity and effort in those relationships. And I just, I was thinking of a, of a question that I want to kind of frame this sermon around this question. And it's this right here. Why is it so hard for humans to get along with each other? Like, why is it so hard? Why, why are relationships so tough? Why do they need so much work? I mean, honestly, if I were to ask you, if I were to say, okay, tell me, how is your life going? Like, are you happy? Like, like do you feel like things are going in a good direction in life in general? And you and I were to sit down over coffee and have that conversation. You know, you might talk about where you work. You might talk about your health. But every one of us eventually are going to talk about one thing that is directly connected to how well we think our life is going. And that's going to be the, the relationships in our life. If we feel like we have, we have deep connections, we feel like, you know, if we're married, our marriage is in a good spot. If we have children, that that relationship with our kids is in a good spot at work. Guys, it's all about relationships. And so this brings me back to the question. If relationships are so important to our overall well-being, if the fact that if I don't feel close to the people in my life, I have a hard time getting just past that. I could put on a, you know, a brave face and go into work, but if my marriage is falling apart or if I'm worried about my kid or if I feel like my best friend is now more of a frenemy than a friend, you know, or whatever's going on, like I, it's hard to get past that, right? It's kind of playing in the background of our mind. So the question this morning is why? Why is something that's so critical to our overall happiness in life such hard work? And I was thinking about the best way to kind of kick off this thought and, and, and really unpack this today. And I was, I don't know why, but I was thinking about this story of when I was a kid. I grew up in this neighborhood uh, where there were some houses and there's some empty lots and some other houses kind of in a rural area. In fact, when we first moved in here, the houses, the, the dirt, it was all the roads were dirt, you know, it's kind of undeveloped. And and there's some, uh, there's some guys in those neighborhoods uh, that just, man, they're hindertucky. Does, is that okay for say that? They're, they just, I mean, they don't really care about their house, but they care about their garage. You guys with me on that, right? Like what's, especially what's in the garage. Like, and there was a guy like that in our neighborhood and uh, he obviously didn't care about his house, but man, what was in his garage was awesome. He would, <laughs> he had a class eight trophy truck. Okay, and I'll have a picture of it for you in a second. And this thing, he was always working on, and usually at nighttime, and the lights would be on in the garage. I can still picture like the fluorescent looking lights, and, and he's, you know, pulling all kinds of stuff out, and sometimes into the front yard, <laughs> because, yeah, we didn't have an HOA. Anyway, he's, he's just like, you know, doing that, and, um, and then sometimes he'd start this thing up. And this thing had a NASCAR block engine in it. It produced over 900 horsepower, okay? I think it was just like pure like alcohol, ethanol, gasoline. I don't know what it was, rocket fuel. And 
it would rattle the pictures off the wall in our house. And we didn't live right next door. We lived a little ways away. I mean, that's how powerful this thing was. Well, if that's going on in your neighborhood and you're like 17 years old, uh, you're probably going to walk over, right? So I did. I walked over and, and I started talking to him. I mean, I did this over months. Um, getting to know him and, and find out what this was. And he raced these things down to Mexico and the Baja 100 or 1000. And, and then one day, one afternoon, he had a little twinkle in his eye. He goes, hey, Brad, you want to go on a ride? I was like, bro, I thought you would never ask. <laughs> Absolutely, I want to go on a ride, right? So uh, did not get permission from my mom. And my mom heard this story in the first service. And she says, hmm, I never knew you did this. Anyway, <laughs> I'm 47 years old. I'm still getting grounded. Here's the point. <laughs> so I got a helmet on. He's got a helmet on. We're in a five-point harness. We are harnessed into this rocket ship on wheels. And we come ripping out of the neighborhood. And um, in just a few minutes, we are up on Pipeline Road. I don't know if you all know where Pipeline Road is. There's a dirt road that connects Henderson with uh, the dry lake bed. And, and we are doing like 100 miles an hour on Pipeline Road. And I'm like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my whole life, right? We have speakers to talk to each other because you can't, over the, the engine, you cannot hear each other, right? And then all of a sudden, totally unexpected, this guy grabs the steering wheel and just turns 90 degrees. So we were on Pipeline Road, a dirt road to start with, and now we are no longer on Pipeline Road. We are no longer on a dirt road. We are on Nevada Desert, and we are flying at 120 miles an hour now over Desert tortoises. I'm sure many of them met Jesus that afternoon. Like, what are we doing right now? Like, totally unexpected. We are just flying through the desert. And I'm like, bro, we are going to die. Like, this was crazy. We, we go for about, I don't know, maybe, maybe about 30, 40 seconds. And then, as you would realize, as you would expect in the desert, we come flying across one of those desert washes, you know, with all the floods we have in this town, right? And, they, and so one of those auroras, I think they call them, I call them washes. Anyway, we come off the edge of one. And then the other side is, you know, we're like launching in the air. And I'm seeing the other side of this thing coming. And I'm like, I'm about to meet Jesus with the turtles. Like, we're all going to die right now. Like, at this moment, I think it's over. And instead of hitting that, that side, like you'd expect in any other vehicle, we literally glided right over it. And he goes, that's what 36 inches of suspension travel do, baby. I'm like, are you kidding me right now? This is the best ride of my life, you know? And just, that, just about 10 seconds, 15 seconds after that, a couple choice words come from his direction, and he shuts the engine down. He goes, ah, well, the gauge, and there's like gauges like a, like a you know, airline cockpit all over the place. One of the gauges indicated that the, that the transmission was starting to overheat and he had to shut it down. And you're like, that's a cool story, Brad. What in the world does that have to do with anything we're talking about? Guys, can I just say something to you? There's so many parallels to working on a truck and keeping that thing running and our relationships. Because the truth of the matter is, there's no such thing as cruise control in your relationships. There's no such thing as, as set it and forget it in our relationships. And one of the biggest lies that we fall for in the relationships around us is that we don't need to give any effort to those relationships that we're in. We believe that relationships are static when they're actually dynamic. And we don't realize this, but if we're not growing together, guys, listen, we are growing apart. 
I don't care how fun things are. I don't think I care how great things are. I don't care how wonderful things could be. Guys, the truth of the matter is if we're not giving maintenance, if we're not watching the gauges, if we're not being careful with our relationships, we're gonna break down. And that's why Paul says to make every effort when it comes to unity. This is going to take work. And we don't like to work. I talked about that last week. I like to sit on the couch and watch football or whatever. I don't like to put effort in. But guys, you're not going to have healthy, connected relationships without working at these relationships, at putting effort in. I want to dive back into our text, and I want to pull this from the text and show you what we're talking about here. This is in, in, the, book of, uh, in the book of Ephesians. Look, look here, chapter 4. We're going to skip this one. Go to Ephesians 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy. I want everyone to say the word worthy, worthy. Okay, let's try it one more time. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life, what? Worthy of the calling you have received. You see, this is chapter four in the book of Ephesians, but the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, he was pulling out some powerful truths for these Christians to understand. And it was that they were called, that they were no longer lost and living the way the world lives. They'd been called out of a world of darkness into the light. Many of them were Gentiles and they needed to understand that now they were included into the people of God. All the promises that God had made to the Jews were now available to the Gentiles because Jesus had made them all reconciled. They were brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. They were one in Christ. They were the temples of the living God and the spirit of God dwelled in their, in their lives. And that when they came together as, in an assembly together, they were experiencing the outpouring of that spirit in a powerful dynamic. They'd been received, they'd been, they'd been saved, and they've been, they've been redeemed. And guys, here's the point. If I am not approaching my relationships from the vantage of my new identity in Jesus, I'll be doing relationships just like a non-believer. And that isn't right. I have to have a whole new approach when I'm approaching my relationships, my marriage, my parenting, my relationships at work. I have to have this idea that everything that comes from my life, everything that I'm involved in in my life is a result of a living worthy of this calling that I've gotten from Jesus. So I want to ask you a question as we start this morning. Is there a Jesusness to your relationships? Is there a, 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 a fragrance of Christ in your commitments to each other? Like, is it, does it show up in your friendships? Does, is there a commitment? Is there, a, is there a, a, a deep sense of I'm a Jesus follower and I'm living out my commitment to Jesus in this relationship? There should be. Look what he goes on to say. So after he reminds them of their calling and that the, a new behavior should, should flow from this new identity, he then says this, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Again, there's that love that you have and it's changing the way you relate to other people. He then goes on and here's our verse for today. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. I can't help but believe that, that Paul himself was in prison and he was bound to, to a prison guard. That when he uses this word, it's almost like this word picture. He's like, man, just like I'm kind of bound to, the, to this chain. I want the followers in these churches, the followers of Jesus to have that sense of commitment, that binding to each other. Do the people in your life know that you're not going anywhere? 
Do they, do they have a deep sense that you're bound because of who you are in Jesus, because of this Jesus life you're living out, that you approach the relationships in your life in a different way? You don't even know what it means to be a fair weather friend. Like that's not on, in your vocabulary. You are a, just a genuine friend. Your marriage is known by a commitment, not by how you feel in the moment. Your children know that you're dependable, that you're there for them. He goes on, he says, for there is one body and one spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. I love that all these make every effort phrases seem to always connect to that hope that's ahead for us. Like, don't forget where we're going, guys. Don't forget where this journey leads us to. There is a vision of God's glorious hope ahead for each one of us. That should get us fired up this morning. Come on, amen. There's a, there's a companion passage that's just almost like a twin of this. I want to read it too, because it fits so well with this one in, in Ephesians. It's in Colossians 3. And it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you have a grievance against someone else, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So right there again, there's this, there's this, this emphasis on because of your relationship with Jesus, it's changing the way you're relating to others. But I want to point out something, and this is powerful. Did you notice in both lists that what leads the list is this call to humility? And I don't think that's by accident. I don't think Paul was just searching for words and he goes, you know, humility and patience and gentleness. I think there's something really critical, guys. I think there's a critical connection between friendship or relationships in general and humility. Guys, I want you to think about something this morning. Isn't it really difficult to be close to someone who doesn't seem to care about anyone but themselves? And isn't the flip of that so true that when you meet someone who you generally, gen, genuinely believe they, they actually want you to succeed, like they really are in your corner, like it's just, you're just drawn like a magnet to that kind of person, right? Do you know what I'm talking about here? In fact, I, I like to say this. I think that humility is the soil for friendship. I, I like to say that I think it's actually impossible to be relationally close to someone who's prideful who's filled with pride. Remember, we talked about whatever fills you, forms you. And if you're filled with pride, right, it forms the way you relate to people, even if you don't realize it. If you let pride unchecked in your heart, right, if that, if that just kind of defines you and it's just kind of filling you and you, you're kind of thinking about the next step in life and where you want to go and you, it's just basically your three best, best friends are me, myself, and I, you know, like that's kind of like where, you, where you're at then you start to look at the people in your life and the relationships in your life in a transactional way, right? And we all know people like this, don't we? Like, you know, that guy from work comes showing up at your desk and your first word is, what do you want, right? Because the only time he shows up is when he wants something, right? And, and maybe you don't say that or maybe you do, but you feel it, right? It's transactional. This person isn't really in my life because they want to help me, <laughs> I'm somebody that can help them. And that's how they see it. And you know, guys, where this really gets heartbreaking is when that happens in a marriage. What should be two people cheering each other on to victories can, because of pride, turn into 
one person or both people feeling the other are using them. Pride keeps score. Pride doesn't like to ever submit. Pride never apologizes, right? Pride never says, hey, you got a good point there. Pride doesn't, doesn't think about the other person in terms of, hey, how can I help you? Pride constantly thinks about how you can help me. And sometimes pride doesn't even appear like arrogance. <laughs> Excuse me, I want to point this out before I, I leave this point, because I think this is important. Sometimes pride shows up in what seems almost opposite, a false sense of humility. It shows up in a sense of self-loathing and self-hatred. When you try to, try to talk to someone who's in this state of mind, and it's still pride. They don't realize it's pride. And it doesn't quite look like pride at, at, at the first. But the truth of the matter is they're constantly thinking about their own past and their own failures and why they're no good and why, why they've messed up and why, they're, why they don't love themselves or like themselves. That The truth of the matter is it's so, so hard to have a relationship with that person because they can't stop thinking about their own failures. They can't love you because they can't love themselves. Are you with me, guys? But it's still pride because it's a preoccupation with themselves. They're literally unable to think about anybody else. And that's the thing, guys. I think the thing that kills relationships is pride. Look what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He says, don't be Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. In another translation, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here it is. Rather in, let's all say the word, humility. Value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. See, there's the key in relationships. See, the key in a relationship is, I want you to win. I'm in your corner. You can trust me. I'm here for you. Someone who has a humble mindset, as it says in Colossians, they're clothed with humility. They literally handle relationships through that lens. And they're thinking, hey, I just like you, man. I want to see you succeed. Like, how can I help you? You're, you're, you're going to start on this journey. Maybe it's something you've done. Hey, let me tell you what happened when I was doing that. Can I come along and give you some advice? And can I help you? Hey, let me take the kids tonight. You go study because you got that big test tomorrow, right? That's somebody that says, I'm looking out for the interests of others. That's someone clothed in humility. How, how many of you, you would like to be married to someone like that, right? How many of us would like to have a best friend with someone like that, Right? See, and this should be the regular fare of a Jesus follower. Someone who's committed their life to the one who humbled himself, gave up the glories of heaven out of love for you and me and took upon himself the form of a slave and died a slave's death for love's sake to redeem us. That's who we follow, church, come on. And in our relationships, we need to follow Jesus. In fact, that's what Paul goes on to write in this same passage. But I want to finish today talking about one more thing that's in every relationship. And I can't leave this topic without addressing it. And that's the, the topic of conflict. Because every one of us are going to handle, we're going to have conflict in our relationships. I don't care if you have the perfect marriage, quote unquote, you're married to an imperfect person. And guess what? Newsflash. That's you. You're the imperfect person, right? And so the truth of the matter is how we handle conflict 
is so critical for our relationships. And sometimes conflict happens in the most funny ways or unassuming ways, right? Uh, sometimes, like, like back to my illustration with the car, you know, you're driving through the desert, you're having a great time, and all of a sudden, whew, the tranny's over, overheating. I better stop, I better slow down, right? And here's the thing, like it can happen in the most you know, unexpected moments in your relationship. And if you're married in here, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples because I have this from personal experience in my life. <laughs> it can happen in like, ah, you left the socks out again, Brad. Like, don't you know? Or the shoes. Do the shoes go there, right? No, they don't. They go over there, right? And so she comes in and she says that and you're tired and you're grumpy or whatever. And you're like, I really don't need a second mom. I already have one mom. And now I have a second one. Tell you, right? Right? Does anyone relate to that? Right? And so then you don't respond in a very loving manner. And what started with simple shoes can turn into an argument, right? That, that, that just happens, right? Or here's another one, right? Every time you jump in your wife's car and you turn it on, you guarantee it's going to be out of... Gas, yeah. It's like, come on. Do you not realize there's a gas station, and then and then there's a battle about that. And it, man, that was really, really uh, well uh, received here. By the way, that must be a common issue, all right? And so, so what starts as an irritation can be can be something can, can be something worse. Can I say this to you guys? Every conflict is a crossroad in a relationship. And you're not going to be able to avoid conflict because it's a part of our life, but you can control conflict. It doesn't have to run out of control. Just like a fire does fine in a fireplace, but it can do terrible damage outside. Conflict is, is inevitable. Conflict needs to be controlled. Conflict needs to happen, guys. Listen, you're not going to avoid it, but it doesn't need to run out of control. And you know what the number one gasoline agent for conflict is? Let's all say it. Pride. You want to take a conflict that was controlled? Let's have a discussion. Hey, this is a good point. I need to put my shoes away. That's not really, that's not really respectful to the standards of the house that you require. <laughs> Whatever. Just joking. Um, uh, <laughs> see, that's snarkiness. Can I confess something? I don't confess. I used a prop last week in my sermon. You may have noticed it. It was a wooden bowl. And it had my snacks next to the couch. Remember that wooden bowl? Some of you do, some of you don't. I was asked about the whereabouts of that wooden bowl after the service last Sunday. And I have to confess, I have no idea where the bowl went. And uh, I shouldn't have taken the bowl. And I, I repent for taking the bowl. The bowl was found today. Come on, somebody. It was found today. My marriage was restored. The bowl was, dis- yes. But it's funny stuff, right? It's just funny things that can happen, right? That can turn into, and it's because you live together. And, and guys, we all know this. The longer you're around somebody, the littlest things can turn to these big things. And that's why, guys, pride is the gasoline agent for conflict. If you want to take a conflict and blow it way out of proportion, just let your pride run loose in your life. But you want to know what controls conflict? Humility. Hey, I'm wrong. You got a good point. That's right. Guys, can I talk about Jesus for a second? Because Jesus, he didn't escape conflict. He had conflict. But there's something so powerful in this story that we're going to end with today. It's not going to be avoided, but it needs to be controlled. I want to show you this story where Jesus and Peter have some conflict. But instead of trying to win the argument, Jesus focused on winning the person. 
So many of us want to win arguments and we forget about the people. See, pride says win that argument. Keep arguing until they surrender and they, white the, they, they wave the white flag and they give up. Win that argument at all costs because pride is, is a demon that's trying to destroy your relationships. But humility says, I don't care about winning the argument. I just want to win the person. Look at what happens in this story. This is the very last conversation that Jesus ever has with Peter. It's in the book of John. This is after Peter had done the unthinkable. When Jesus needed Peter most, he denied that he even knew Peter or that he even knew Jesus. And he denied him three times. The book of Luke tells us that on that third denial, the rooster crowed just as Jesus predicted. And Jesus and Peter lock eyes for a brief moment. And Peter runs away in shame. Probably a lot of self-hatred. Probably a lot of like, I'll never do anything for God again. Jesus dies on the cross. He rises from the dead. And now he starts to appear to his disciples. And he has breakfast with them one morning. I want to show you what Jesus does. When they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, who's initiating the conversation? Jesus is. Who needs the conversation? They both do. Who's been hurt in the conversations before? Jesus. Who did the hurting? Peter. You know what that tells me? Sometimes even though we were the ones that were hurt, we might have to take the step. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I was thinking this week, I wonder how Jesus prepared for this conversation. I wonder how he thought about, how am I gonna have this really important conversation with Peter? I mean, there could have been anything. He could have said, Peter, I just got to ask you, are you sorry for what you did? Peter, how dare you, right? Like we've talked about this before as a church. This, this story is just so pivotal. Like there could have been so many ways that Jesus started this conversation, but, but Jesus is not interested in winning an argument. He's interested in winning the person because that's what humility does. Are you with me, church? We, can't, we have to stop trying to win wars in our homes, in our workplaces, in our relationships. We are not here to win wars. Last time I read, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against cosmic powers. We're going to talk about that next week. But the deal is, guys, I am not trying to beat you. I'm trying to win you. And when I have humility in my heart, that's the only motivation for my conversation then. And so he says to Peter, do you love me? more than these. Yes, Lord. He said, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. In verse 16, Jesus asked him a second time. In verse 17, here's the third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And you could feel the tension building. One denial, two denials, three denials. Peter was hurt. Jesus' goal wasn't to hurt Peter. Jesus' goal was to restore Peter. But sometimes there's no way to get to restoration without honesty that sometimes wounds. Guys, we avoid hard conversations because we don't want to hurt someone. 
but that keeps us from restoring them. We avoid hard conversations because we aren't really sure that they're gonna respond the right way. Can I just tell you, I don't know if Jesus knows Peter's gonna respond the right way, but Jesus wants to win the person. I cannot be responsible for how they respond. I can just be responsible for the state of my heart and what I want to see happen. And that's, I want us to be together again. I want to have the hard conversation because on the other side of a hard conversation is unity, is intimacy, is vulnerability, is connection. And so Peter's hurt. And he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. And he goes right into this prophetic word for Peter. Truly, I tell you, When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. The text tells us, hit the next one. It says, this was to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. See, on the other side of a hard conversation, it's possibly reconciliation. Sometimes it can't happen because it takes two, but it's up to you to decide how you're going to relate to the relationships in your life.